So we're going to pick up there in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Uh, one of the most effective rules of communication is you never begin with an apology, so I'm going to break that rule intentionally. Um, I've preached sick before. This is the worst I've ever been. <laughs> so this could go short. I don't know. I'm hoping this is like, uh, like Michael Jordan's flu game, and he got sick and, and played his best, and maybe that's what's going to happen. If you don't know what that is, you need to Google that and understand that. Shame on you for not knowing it. But I'm hoping that, um, and I'm just, I'm kind of, I'm bringing my own frailty to the picture here, and it, I want to point that out, not, not necessarily as an apology, but um, there is a trash can right there um, just waiting for me, and I'm all hyped up on essential oils and Pepto-Bismol. It's <laughs> overrated. Don't do it. So I'm going to read through this, and it is... The irony is not lost on me that the last half of our time we'll be talking about what it means to consider human frailty and the end of life. And since chapter 7 of this book, the transition has been what we see here is King Solomon probably at the very end of his life reflecting on things that are wise and things that are foolish. And what happens and what changes you'll hear is a tone for this beginning of chapter 11 on to a tone and a tense of exhortation. So up to this point, he's just said, hey, this is wise, this is foolish, you know, talk amongst yourselves, do, do with that what you will. But this changes. And what we finally see at the end of this book is that instead of just reflecting on the meaningless of life apart from God, the meaninglessness of life, trying to find satisfaction and identity apart from what God has done for us and freely gives to us in Jesus, we find ourselves in what I think here is more of a, a tone of command. So this man who's reflecting on his own frailty begins to give us this advice. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, we'll read all the way to verse 8. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and the if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eye to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have 
no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. For the last several weeks and concluding this next week at Easter, we've been considering a meaningless life. Uh, the reflection of this King Solomon who succeeded at everything he could have dreamed and yet still found all of that success, all of that achievement to lack in giving him satisfaction. And when we cease trying to find satisfaction and identity and contentment under the sun, apart from God, we actually find a wisdom from God beyond the sun. So godly wisdom then, as it's expounded upon for the last several chapters, is to live in such a way in this life under the sun that points and testifies to the reality that is beyond the sun. So wisdom for us is to weigh and measure out what life really is, how long it really lasts, and what really can be accomplished. And we begin to live in such a way, knowing that we cannot find identity or, or purpose or satisfaction or lasting eternal joy apart from God, but He freely gives it. And now that we receive that, the way that we live, the way that we manage our decisions, our temperament, points toward that godly gift that is beyond the sun. So, as is our custom, I hope to invite you into a despair. If you are presently finding your identity and satisfaction in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, I want to warn you, it will likely end in depression. That thing you're currently running after, the end of the rainbow, you may actually find, but you may come to find that it won't leave you any more unsatisfied or less unsatisfied than when you first set out to achieve it. And that's what Solomon tells us. The wisest, richest, most powerful, most influential person on the earth. There is no parallel, and yet at the end of his life, he says, here, you caught that. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So we begin to contemplate that if finding joy apart from God is like chasing the wind, then finding joy in God is the source of wisdom especially since we find out in the New Testament that wisdom incarnate, wisdom made manifest for us is Jesus Christ, sent by God to shame the wisdom and confound the wise of the world. So we start with a parable in the first four verses. It'll take a little while to unpack this, but here we go. It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. 
Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you, not, you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So here we go. This is strange, right? This is taken literally. This would make no sense, right? Throw water and, I mean, throw bread on the water and then find it later and eat soggy bread. That sounds fantastic. I would fake throw up, but that's just not funny right now. <laughs> that joke was funnier in the back of my head than when it came out of my mouth. So there's a few things going on here we've got to unpack. There's this picture of throwing and casting bread. Now, now we've seen this before. Last chapter when he said uh, that, that bread is, is meant to bring laughter. Obviously, we don't look at a piece of bread and just, just giggle or laugh at a piece of bread, okay? But instead, it's meant to be a symbol that, that our abundance, our feasting, the, the joy from God's providence to get to enjoy what God gives us, right? It's, it, it's, it's good. We see this from, from the beginning of Genesis, that what God has created and intended is good. It's not just tolerable, but you can eat an apple, and you're not just like, oh, this makes me less hungry, but you're like, this is delicious, and God made it good. And so we're meant to enjoy these things as gifts from God. Over and over and over again, you see this. And so when he says bread again, he's referencing that same thing, that sense of abundance, that sense of God's provision, whatever it is that God has provided for you. It, it may be more literally speaking of grain. So there's a few different options here. Now we know that for, and this may have been important for us because this may have been wisdom he gained from one of his wives uh, who was, who, was, uh, who came from Egypt, one of the, the, the practices of farmers on the delta, particularly the Nile delta, was that when the water would flood, when it began to recede, they would throw their seed and their grain out onto the water, and then as the water would recede, it would settle into the fertile delta and then be fruitful. So this could have strictly agricultural connotations. It could be just like Gamble. Throw your seed on the water. I know that seems like it'll be washed out to sea, but if you will do it, it, it might be bountiful. Uh, the second thing we see here, and we see this from uh, First and Second Kings, the story of Solomon, regularly he shipped out goods and shipped in goods. He's one of the first like, global empires that we, that we hear of in the Bible. Um, and so we see him like shipping out goods, exporting and importing other things. And he would regularly export grain. And so what he's saying here, if you caught that, ship, cast, throw your bread, singular, upon the waters, plural. And so this may have been his reference to, if you're going to send your grain and ship it out, don't figuratively put all your eggs in one basket. Ship it in multiple different containers to multiple different markets. You're going to have a better return on your investment if you don't invest it all in one thing. That could be one of the things. But then there's another possibility that there's other like proverbs that, that we kind of see in this. This becomes a more pagan phrase. This, this is where the first part might be a more pagan uh, Mesopotamian phrase, but like it, it doesn't really helpful. It, it, it changes. So he, Solomon might be borrowing wisdom from, let's be honest, any one of 700 wives or 300 mistresses that he had, uh, had like accrued for himself. And so we don't really know where he's gaining some of this wisdom. But he might be thinking that there's kind of a picture of, of a proverb where if you throw food out, like your excess or abundance, there's like an honor to it. Now, this is a pagan thing. Remember, you can see this like somebody, I don't know, pours out one for their homies, okay? There's like, you get this, right? There's like, oh, that's a complete waste. And, he, and, he, and he's saying that like, okay, there, there might be something being pointed to toward there that's greater. In fact, there's, a, a, an, there's an ancient proverb we see in some, of, uh, some, some other texts from about uh, a few hundred years before this text originated 
And it was this, this parable of like the king's son who was on an island, and every time the people would cook, they would take their scraps and throw it out to feed the fish and the ducks, and it would float down to the island where the king's son was dying of starvation, and every day he had providence, and, and he would eat the food, right? So that's kind of implied here, right? But this, we don't really know. What we do know is it, is it seems to be kind of pushing us in, I would say, for the first four verses to kind of understand things um, a, a little bit differently. And so here's, here's where I guess I would just kind of throw this out there. We want to summarize this idea is that faith in a sovereign God is visible in investments and generosity. And secondly, after verse 4, beginning in verse 5, faith in a sovereign God is visible in enjoying life by beholding how precious it is. So the first four verses, I think, encompass this. Like, believing in a sovereign God has tangible and visible evidence in your life. And having wisdom from God has a visible symbol. And whether it is trusting and gambling and throwing seeds out onto water that will, that will eventually subside and bring a fruitful crop, whether it is sending, as most scholars would agree, like sending ships and diversifying your investments in different places so that all your eggs aren't one in one basket, or whether it's just an homage to some pagan slogan where you pour one out for someone as though that does something. Either way, what you believe will be visible in your generosity and your investment. What you pour yourself into is a direct reflection of what you really believe. And what we see here contrasted in the first four verses is this. Abundance, generosity, and courageous investment versus scarcity, stinginess, and selfish hoarder, hoarding. So look at like uh, just the words here. If we just break down that first sentence, cast, the first word, right? This implies a boldness. It implies like a confident throwing. Like you, you are throwing the bread seed, the abundance, you're throwing it confidently. The first thing it implies here is that belief in a sovereign God will be reflected in the confidence with which you hold things that you now have possession of. After all, we believe that God owns everything. Everything you own, everything you possess has been entrusted to you temporarily. It will wear out. You are a steward of it. You didn't invent it. You didn't make yourself tall. You didn't make yourself short. You didn't make yourself this way. This was out of your control. And the Bible teaches that God actually has sovereignty over those things. And belief in that sovereignty will play out in the way that you manage and you are stewarding those things. So that picture of casting is a picture of confidence. Then you see the second, we already talked about a little bit, bread. It symbolizes abundance or God's provision. Whether it's literally grain for a, a, for a farmer to diversify their investments. It's, it's the provision of God. And so, put these two together already. Have confidence, hold loosely, invest courageously with what God has provided for you. Th then you see the third kind of concept here is this word waters. Not just water, but waters. Now, from beginning to end, the Bible paints us a picture of of the symbolic nature of water. Water is, also, is almost always a symbol of chaos and uncertainty. Almost always. And so you, you hear this, this picture from beginning to end, like, okay, they crossed over the chaotic river 
in right, the, the Red Sea, for example, and God delivered them through the chaos into the wilderness, and then they crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And it, over and over and over again, you see this. In fact, this is what, this is, works really well for me today, uh, this water represents chaos that will consume you. And, haha, uh, we calendared this one right. This, there's a sense in which even in baptism, we're symbolizing something. Like, like, if I hold Sarah down or anyone else down, it's no longer cute and we no longer clap. It's murder and I go to jail. Now, you weren't afraid of the pastor drowning you and murdering you until I just said it. But, <laughs> but I want you to be aware of that possibility. You don't go underwater and live. You go underwater and die. Baptism is not only a symbol of something. It is an active participation in the words of the New Testament use of burial and immersion in chaos. But I don't know if you notice, uh, maybe she, I, I didn't think Sarah looked terrified. Did you? Right? And there's this picture here, isn't there? That we're buried with Christ in the same way that he walked into the grave and he will walk out. Well, I can, let me take that. He was carried into the grave. And then he walked out as we celebrate this next week. So also, one day, in the same way you don't drown in baptism, you and I will be put six feet under and we have nothing to fear. Jesus will call us out. It's, it's, it's absurd. It's miraculous. But there is a face-to-face -face encounter with the watery chaos. And this is what's beautiful. If you skip to the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, we find out there's no more sun because God's glory illuminates everything. He also tells us something pretty powerful. John tells us in the book of Revelation, in this new Jerusalem, there will be no more sea. One day, this watery chaos that we're invited to invest, <laughs> invest into and, and courageously step out into will be consumed and removed. It will be evaporated by the glory of God and the, all the chaos that it symbolizes will be removed when Jesus comes back and brings all things under his rule and reign. He came first to destroy and overcome death. One day he's going to come back and destroy chaos and suffering. This is powerful for us. So put these together now. We're like confidently and boldly trust in God's providence and invest with our abundance and what God has provided for us into the uncertainty, into the chaos. And then it says, for you will find. So now you have this other concept, this picture of pursuing expectantly. Like when you find something that you've been searching and looking for, this is what we're expected to do. We're supposed to trust God and in His providence such that, in His sovereignty such that, we invest in things that seem absurd to the world and then we're the people who run out going like, did it work? Did it work? The parable of the sower paints this picture over and over and over again. God apparently is not disappointed when the, when the gospel goes out three out of four times it isn't heard, but we expectantly hope that abundantly one day something miraculously and exponentially powerful will happen. We find, it says. Then it says, you will find it after many days. I don't know if you caught that word, that little phrase there, many days. It seems to imply that we should pursue expectantly, I don't like this one, with a great deal of patience. With a, with a great deal of patience. So just put this together. There's this picture now. And, it, and then he expounds upon it. We're supposed to boldly invest in trusting in God's sovereignty, trusting in His mission, in His purpose in the world. And we're supposed to take the abundant provision He has given us. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. 
Some of you have this, some of you have that, some of you are, are better at this, some of you are worse at that. Whatever God has entrusted you with, you take it and we invest it, we are generous with it, and we boldly cast whatever provision he's given to us into this chaotic world. And we're, we're the weird ones. We believe in God's sovereignty so strongly that we really actually go out and expect to find fruitfulness. And we'll do it with great perseverance for many days. Great patience. This kind of paints a picture of what it means to live generously. Verse 2 all the way to 4 kind of, kind of unpacks this. says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen. So now he's expounding upon the part of this little parable that's probably just good financial advice, right? The don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify your investments. Don't pour every... And this is a broken, fallen world run by sin and ruled by sinful people. Sometimes things bad happen. So if you know that's going to happen, plan accordingly. Invest in multiple things. Diversify. Don't put all your eggs into one basket. So he says, give the portion to seven. This would have been a, a picture of, of perfection, this number. But then he says, like, give what's perfect and, and sufficient. But then he says, or even to eight, right? Give even what's beyond what would be customary. Because you have no idea what disaster may happen on this earth. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, this is brilliant, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Don't, don't, catch, don't, don't miss what, what he's saying here. I want you to catch this. He, he, he seems to be saying there's a way that the world works. This is not new for us in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We saw this, right? There's a time and a season for everything. And wisdom is to understand the appropriateness of every time and season. And so then he kind of applies this little analogy of the times and seasons in verse 4. So then, so he says like the clouds rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and then he says like trees fall, okay, like the forest has its own thing. So he, he applies, he turns it upside down, and he speaks again of, of weather and, and whatnot in verse 4. He says, now he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So it's called a chiasm. He has like a he has like a A B B A. So he's like, this is what the weather is like. This is what the wind does in the forest. Now, if you just look at the wind in the forest, you will do this. And if you just regard the weather and look at the clouds, you will not do this. And so there's a strange challenge here. On one hand, caution is encouraged, but on the other hand, fear can paralyze. Uh, the person who apparently in verse 4 sits and stares at the weather will never think it's good enough. Will never think it's perfect enough to go and sow. This farmer who is waiting for the perfect day will never be a farmer. And the person, again, he has this picture of fear now. Again, like if the clouds are going to do something, if the weather, if the wind's going to knock a tree down that could kill you, if the weather's going to ruin the harvest, it says, he who regards the clouds will not reap. This might be just a, a pointed place for wisdom. I, I don't know what's on the horizon for you. Uh, we talked about how laziness and just the, you know, do it uh, last week is a principle of wisdom, not to procrastinate habitually or to put off these things. Uh, but there might be another one here just kind of laying here for us, waiting, Right? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What's the thing that you're like, no, no, this is what has to happen. These are the things I have to organize, and these are the things I have to get under control. 
I'd say the most amazing things I've ever been a part of are things that I did <laughs> with just enough ignorance, with the with this conditions just bad enough to where God is greatly glorified in it. Right? And my own my own personal belief, this is just my observation, this isn't in the Bible, but my own personal experience is God often keeps me ignorant of the details and the conditions uh, to keep me from being disobedient. Because I think if I knew how this was going to end, I probably would chicken out. Right? I mean, you, go ahead. Wait till you're ready to get married. Good luck. Right? I'm ready. In fact, uh, newsflash, if someone says, I'm ready, run away. Run so fast. But like, there's a sense in which, like, if, if you just wait till it's perfect, it won't happen. Remember, we live under the sun. We live, we live in a broken, fallen world. You want to wait for perfect things to happen? Okay, sit tight. Jesus will come back, and that will happen. In the meantime, this is, this is a broken, fallen world. Wait, uh, well, we, we want to wait till we're ready to have kids or to adopt or whatever. Like, okay, good luck. Good luck getting ready. for. I've never heard anyone who's like, I was so ready for marriage. Oh my goodness, I am nailing it right now. I've just never heard that. And I've never heard anyone who has a baby, a child, anybody they've, you know, born or adopted, and they're like, this is so easy. Oh my goodness, they sleep through the night, they don't, they just do everything. I, I mean, I've never heard that. Now, again, maybe I shouldn't have told you that, maybe I should have left you ignorant so that you thought you could do it, but like, in essence, if you're waiting for perfection, you're glorifying your own comfort, that might be the idol of your own approval and comfort coming up, and you're just waiting for everything to be perfect for you. That would be awesome if the world revolved around you, but since it doesn't, what are you waiting for? If you're going to invest heavily and generously what God has entrusted to you, friend, is there going to be some risk involved? Now, there's wisdom, right? We know that. We've seen this for the last couple of chapters. There's wisdom. Don't be foolish. But there's this strange thing. On one hand, foolishness would cause a premature investment. Caution can protect us. But on the other hand, fear can paralyze, can it? Fear can cause you just to stop in your tracks and do nothing. So here's we, we, with this picture now of like this... Again, this is an ecclesia book. This is Ecclesiastes. The ecclesia is the New Testament Greek word for the church, the called out one. So this is mostly supposed to be played out in community amongst, he calls himself the preacher, assuming he is a gathering of people, okay? And so the wisdom he's given is meant to be applied in community. So if you find yourself at any point like convicted and like, I am no good at this, this is awesome. You're, you're in the community. You are surrounded by people who are probably really gifted at it. And when you get to know them and after they help you, you'll find all the stuff they're really bad at. And it, I, I just could be wrong on this one, but I bet you're probably really good at all that stuff. And you'll go, oh, I remember when Jonathan told me this is exactly how it was going to happen. This is how God's providence works. And this is what it looks like to trust that God does this on purpose and not by accident. So this is where we allow ourselves a little bit of transparency with one another in this. Here's why. Um, there's a lot of ways to talk about this. Uh, I use the word like abundance and scarcity. A couple of authors in the last couple of decades have talked about this. But the, a biblical theme would be the idea of generosity or like courageous investment, right? Cast your waters or cast your bread out on the water. That seems, that seems brave, right? Is that really going to pan out? I don't know. We're going to do so bravely, trusting God, okay? But then the opposite would be like a, a stinginess, kind of a selfishness, a, a nature of hoarding. 
the way you would talk about this is the mindset of abundance and the mindset of scarcity. The mindset on the bottom of scarcity is this picture that like there just isn't enough to go around. There just isn't enough. There's not, and I'm over here telling you God provides, and even now you're like, not really. There isn't enough. Now, this is a problem because this is a zero-sum mentality. You know what a zero-sum game is? That whenever one person has any advantage, it's immediately a disadvantage elsewhere. And that's what scarcity does. It makes you think that, well, if something good happens here, you're just, something bad is about to happen, or this will cost me in the long run. There's never a win-win. It's always focused on short term. Scarcity always plays out, and you're, you're, remember the, this picture of casting your bread and finding it after many days. That's, that's terrifying for someone who believes in scarcity. A person who believes in scarcity will focus on the short term and ignore the long term. And here's how it usually plays out. It's almost always directly connected to feelings of envy, jealousy, and childish competitiveness. Because when you believe that not everybody can win, when you believe that there's not enough to go around, and then any time someone succeeds, it almost always precludes the internal possibility that you're going to fail. So if you find yourself looking at people around you, and like they're smarter than you, maybe they're, I don't know, they're better looking than you, they're more successful, more confident, and you find yourself hating them for those things, Friend, you're missing out on God, God's wisdom here. You're never going to cast generously and invest generously what God's entrusted to you because you're always going to be thinking what's going to happen next. I, I think I've shared this with many of you. Um, I, I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of different sports and a lot of different teams. Uh, one of my favorite is Tom Brady and the New England Patriots. I apologize in advance. I'm sorry. But it started with me sitting down with a guy, and he was from New England, and I was, he was like, you know, why do you, you know, why do you hate Tom Brady? And I was like, because he's like really great, and he's like won all these Super Bowls, and like supermodels love him, and he's like rich. And, and he was like, time out, I think what you mean is not you hate Tom Brady. I think what you mean is you envy Tom Brady. And it was like, ha, 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 oh. I mean, it's, <laughs> and I would put that at you. Do you make fun of people for being smarter or better than you? Or do you rejoice? that God in his providence has put those people in your life to care for you, to love and serve you with what they've been given. Don't get me wrong, those people can abuse those gifts. We know what that looks like. But if every time you see someone who looks successful in some realm and you immediately have a feeling of competition with them, friend, that you're missing the wisdom. You're missing what I would argue are the seeds of the gospel here. Because the fruit of, and this is, this is powerful, the, the fruit of this like scarcity mentality is almost always division and disunity. It's almost always disagreement and conflict. Because after all, if there's not enough to go around, then you have to hoard more for yourself. If God really isn't going to provide, then you have to take things into your own hand. But if we're going to be people who believe in biblical generosity, as we look, remember, we're, we're peering into the character of God and the seeds of the gospel here. If God in all his infinite generosity looked at the terrible investment that is you and me and says, yeah, I'm going to put my son on the line for those people, then I think we might have something to learn here, right? There might be a model of generosity for us to, to begin to glean from, don't you think? 
So here, just look at this way. If, if abundance and generosity is our motive, if, if God's generosity and his character plays out on our wisdom, then the opposite tends to happen. You, you tend to all of a sudden be extremely grateful. You tend to be really, really mindful of long-term planning. You begin to be more heavily invested in long-term benefits rather than short-term wins. Here's what I would tell you. Gratitude and thankfulness are the greatest weapons against greed, envy, and entitlement. Any place where there's greed, pride, envy, and entitlement, friend, the greatest weapon you can have, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, right? We're without ceasing, we pray without ceasing, we give thanks in all circumstances, and we rejoice always. This is what we do. This is the will of God for us. You want to fight your own sense of discontentment? Start with gratitude. You'll start to chip away at the pride and greed and entitlement you currently experience. This is biblical for us, right? I've, I've taught you to memorize this. Uh, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. So like, we're the people who, I don't know, prone to forget God's provision and, and forget that he has carried us, this, carried us this way thus far. This is the greatest antidote to greed and entitlement is just gratitude and thankfulness think, God has given me this. I don't deserve this. I deserve hell. Everything else is a gift. One practical way to fight this, I would just push at. You might want to watch or meter or ask someone to kind of measure your media consumption. I only say this, I have a love-hate relationship with social media particularly, but social media and media tends to focus on what you don't have rather than what you do. It tends to focus on what you don't have and trying as hard as it can to teach you to want it and wish you had it. Like, I mean, the, I just, I, it's just not profitable to have any, the, the, it's not profitable to have commercials during the Super Bowl that says, you have everything you need, don't go buy anything, right? Like, I mean, that'd be an awesome commercial. It just doesn't make any money. And so you won't see anytime soon a commercial for, hey, stay home today, turn off the TV, don't go shopping. You don't need anything, right? That's, that's not us. And so most media is driven on making you think that you're inadequate, you're not good enough, you're not, you're not beautiful enough, you're not valuable enough. You, if you would just do this, have this, achieve this, buy this, save up, go into debt for this, you'll be there. So just look out. That will push against a sense of God's abundant provision. So then begin to share what you do have with the people around you. Share it. Teamwork creates a win-win and not a win-loss. And our current culture really is bought into the idea that if there's a winner, there must be a terrible, pitiful loser. And we look for the loser almost more quickly than we look for the winner. Selfishness creates envy. Generosity creates unity. This is where I think this applies to our church. Um, you're in a room full of some of the most generous people I know. It's not because they're wealthy. You know, I don't know anybody who owns an island in this room, um, but the people in this room are the most generous people I know. And it's not because they're wealthy, it's because they're generous, because they're faithful with God's provision. And there's a lot you could learn from a lot of people in this room who give generously. They give generously to the life of this church. They give generously to people around them. They give generously the big T's we talk about are your time, talent, and treasure. And friend, there is nothing more unifying than locking arms with some people and sacrificing something on behalf of a greater goal. There was nothing more unifying. 
than when you serve alongside. Just ask anybody who's been in a foxhole. Ask, ask a soldier to talk about his relationship with the person who watched his back. A- ask any person in the military to tell, the, to tell you how much they, they love those people that they know would die for them. You, you get this. And so for us, the converse side of this is like, maybe you know this already, there's also nothing more divisive than giving and sacrificing generously towards something and watching somebody kind of float along. It'll create animosity. Because after all, that person is operating with a position of scarcity. And they're holding on and they're hoarding. There's not enough. God's not going to provide. God won't take care of me. I'm not going to let go of this. I'm going to protect this. That's fine. But expect the most lonely existence you can imagine. You can imagine. We're different. Do you see the missional heart of God in this? Do you see the missional heart of God? We said boldly and confidently send out what you have been entrusted with and then expect blessing in return. Expect God to bring a bountiful and exponential harvest. Do you hear the missional heart of God in this? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while you and I were the enemy, picture chaos, the water, Jesus boldly steps out, takes our place, and grants us the joy that we don't deserve. So this is, I think, the implications of this. All right, so if you begin to believe that, so maybe if you're not a Christian in this room, I'm really glad you're here. I want you to hear what we really believe on its merits. And then all I would ask you is to consider the possibility that God might have done something exceedingly generous in sending Jesus Christ for the likes of you and for me. And when that begins to stir up your affections, when that begins to change the way you see the world, it changes the way you treat people and it changes the way you treat your possessions. Instead of hoarding from a position of scarcity, you you give generously and invest boldly. This is pretty powerful. And I guess what I would challenge you is like, in the life of our church, it can be easy at times to simply invite and hang out with the people that just look, talk, and act like us. Oh, friend, friend, you've been entrusted with something more valuable than you currently realize, and you are hoarding it. And your family, friends, the people around you are desperate. They're living in chaos. And God has entrusted you to be the one to take this good news, win the right to be heard, and invest generously, radically, selflessly, expecting that God will do something. Is your life marked by hanging out with people that make you feel safe? Or is your life marked by investing and pouring out yourself into risky, messy relationships? This is what it means for us. And that kind of giving is unifying. That kind of giving is awesome. Now, I, 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 this, this is, happens in our church. It's, it's amazing the way this has happened. But it, what it means is you're one of two people. You're either the person investing and casting generously, giving selflessly, or you're the person who's hoarding and sucking the life out of everyone else in your own greedy, selfish, hoarding way. What's you? Because then he begins to explain what wisdom looks like. Now, we'll spend a little bit of time here 
And then we'll kind of start here next week as we wrap up for Easter. Um, And what he gives us quite clearly is some imperatives, some exhortations of what wisdom looks like when we begin to consider our short life. As you do not know the way of the Spirit comes to the bones and the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Here he says again, there's a mystery in the way that God gives a spiritual life to an unborn child. I, just want to, I don't want to make a political stand here, but I just want to point out this is one of many places in the Bible where, where we find that the Bible teaches and, and kind of expects us to understand that an unborn child is a theological matter. And so I'm not here, I don't want to like infringe upon a woman's right to choose, but I do want to infringe upon people uh, and their right to make ignorant decisions. If you're going to choose, at least know that Christians, you want to know why Christians get all upset about abortion? This is why. This, is, this, this keeps happening. And on a very personal note, like, I, I love this, okay? I, all my favorite people are people who were not aborted. Very, I'm very biased. At some point in time, each of you had a parent that had the, cho- had the choice to, to relinquish this and say, you know what, I don't know that really God is putting a spirit into the bones of my belly. Some, so every one of you had a mom who probably had the right to do it, and I'm so grateful she didn't. I'm so grateful. My life would be empty that much more without you in it. And so I'm just personally biased. I just want to put that, this is what we see. It's over and over and over again. Scripture kind of just says, this is why we think this, okay? You don't have to protest or pick it. Just at least know what the Bible teaches. So no one knows the mystery of the beginning of life is what he's saying here. There's a mystery about the beginning of life. And then he begins to reflect upon the mystery of the end of life. So he says, In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet. It's a metaphor for life. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Very simply, the days of darkness outnumber the days of light. The days of light being your life and the days of darkness being your death is a disproportionate equation. Very simply, you will be dead a lot longer than you will be alive. Now, invest accordingly. Act wisely. You you will be dead a long time. You will be alive like a breath. So then we... Do what? Since we know that, he says something crazy. In all of your days, rejoice. Again, verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Now, this is tricky. I think you leave each person to decide where, you know, are you young or not. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Don't miss that. Now that we contemplate the mystery of death and the mystery of having a short life, We rejoice in the days that we have. And look at this. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So I want to say this as carefully as possible. This is where the Bible does tell you to follow your heart. But don't forget, it has already told us that in your heart is wickedness, madness, and deceit. So this is what I think this means for us. This is how we begin to apply this. You fear God and you do what you want. Here's the catch. Half of you in the room got excited about one of those sentences and half of you got excited about the other. 
And here's the problem. They're both evidence of godly wisdom. After all, we believe that the Holy Spirit has taken residence in us. First Corinthians 12, 3 says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit is leading them to say this. And so now our decisions are guided by and our conscience is crafted by the Holy Spirit. For those of us in Christ, we're not ourselves. Our old self is dead and new life has been raised. And so that doesn't mean we'll live perfectly like Jesus, but it does mean that day by day we look less and less like our old dead self and more and more like our new life in Christ. So we follow our hearts. If our hearts are being led by God. You know, one of the most, I heard Oprah say this once, what she like misquoted, um, it, it, you know, essentially like fear the Lord, revere the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I think what she meant was whatever you think is God, think a lot about that and then you'll be happy. And I wish she'd have just said that instead of just misquoting the Bible. But for the sake of this conversation, there's, there's a way in which we apply this with wisdom. Because when you fear the Lord, your heart begins to be transformed and your desires look more and more like his. So here's what I would say for some of you paralyzed by what you are about to do next. Fear God and then do what you want. Remember, we're supposed to trust in his provision. How self-centered are you to think that God's will is now hinging upon your next decision? Like you're going to take the wrong job, date the wrong person, and God's going to up on high go, oh, they ruined it. It was perfect and they destroyed it all. How self-centered are you to think that's really the case? Reflect, fear God. He will guide you. And if you make a mistake, guess what? He's a loving father and he'll go, that was a bad idea. Let's not do that again. Let's learn from that. Here are the consequences you get to live with, but, but come, I'm a loving father and we'll go next. He's going to put your arm around you and, and walk you through the next thing. Seek the things that you know that God desires. Do what you want. Fear God. Do not do one to the detriment of the other. For those of you who got really excited, you love that do what you want, man. You're just like, right now, you're ready to just go crazy. What does he tell us? Just remember, in verse 9, that all of these things that you do, God will bring into final judgment. In verse 1, he says of chapter 12, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. When you have all the energy, remember that in the end God gave them to you before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Here's the irony and I'll end on this. God in his mercy on the week that I'm supposed to talk to you about uh, human frailty and death has, uh, has had an I've had an interesting week. My grandmother died this last week, and after this, I'm going to get in, uh, an airplane. I'm trying not to throw up in the airplane, and I'm going to fly, and I'm going to do my grandmother's funeral. And there's a strange irony. If I died tomorrow, they'd say, oh, he was too young. It was unexpected. But my grandmother, who was blessed with many, many years at 92, lived into this day where there was no more joy in her life, and she didn't want to be alive anymore. What a strange irony, isn't it? In this life, we wish away the days of our youth and then wish away the days that we have left. I thought I was preparing to like help you to cope with the frailty of life and gain wisdom, but instead, yeah, wow, what a, what a sweet gift that, that he's been preparing me. I'm fairly intimately connected to human frailty at the moment. I th think I could throw up in any minute. And so here's where I'll leave you. I want you to see the seeds of the good news in this text. That while you were yet sinner, 
while you were an enemy of God, he sent his son into the chaos to redeem you and to draw you out, such that now the life we have is a gift, and by his provision, we live each day. No, we know that we know that day is not guaranteed. We know that perfection is not guaranteed. But oh, thank God, he did not give us what we deserve, but he has extended to us a beautiful gift of his providence to care for us even in our sickness, even in our weariness, that one day we will stand before him and by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, he might say, well done, good and faithful servant. He is patiently sending and extravagantly giving. Will you receive it? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for all the gifts you've already given us this day. I thank you for breath in our lungs. And I thank you for your mercy. I thank you especially for the reminder of the gospel we saw in Sarah. And I thank you for uh, the joy that we get to partake in as we see new life. God, it is my tendency to hoard and to keep for myself and with greed, feel entitled to everything I have as though I've earned it or somehow purchased it. Would you begin to loosen my grip on those false beliefs? Would you begin to develop in me a great humility, a deep sense of awareness of how short this life really is? We've only got so many days. Let us invest them graciously, expecting that your providence will bring about a fruitful and exponential return. If there's some in this room that maybe the thought of a, a God who provides and cares just seems absurd, uh, would you just even now begin to soften their heart, begin to allow them to even consider the possibility that God is real and good and he has sent his son Jesus so that we would know it. And even just to consider that possibility is the beginning of new life. We thank you for this, this gift we have been given so graciously. In Jesus' name, amen.